Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 143 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So my guest today is David Platt. A lot of you might know that name. He's written a number of best-selling books, including probably his best-known, Radical. He's also a young preacher who's made a huge impact in the first decade of his leadership. And we have a pretty amazing conversation uh, that's really authentic, very true, very real. Uh, often we see people's best in public, uh, but David takes us a little bit behind the scenes, and uh, it's it's a great conversation. So thanks uh, for your transparency and your honesty, David. Uh, really, really glad to have this conversation with you. Also, I'm very thankful for you, listeners. I just want you to know, you guys are my heroes, and. The goal of doing this podcast is to bring you conversations that challenge you, that grow you, that that help you. And I know so many of you continue to share this podcast. You're sharing it with your team, and I just want to say thank you so much for that. So uh, if this episode helps you, share it on social, on Twitter, on um, Facebook, wherever, or you know, Instagram. It's a lot harder to share these things on Instagram, isn't it? But anyway, um, talk about it, share it with your friends, and if you would, leave a rating and review. Um, that just gets it in front of other people. So you can do that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, uh, wherever. And I want to thank some partners. We have a brand new one. Um, do you know what's happening this fall? Have you, have you heard about this? Andy Stanley and the Orange Tour are teaming up together. Now, the Orange Tour is a 20-city nationwide tour that starts in September Um, for your family ministry team. We also do a senior leader track in it. It's the perfect experience to help you get your entire team on the same page and cast vision for how to influence the next generation. However, this year, and this is new, in five different cities, Andy Stanley is going to be there the day before the Orange Tour with his brand new Deep and Wide Tour. Deep and Wide is a one-day event designed to help church leaders like you make your programming, your preaching, and your community presence irresistible. Now, it's a special week, okay? If you're listening to this podcast live, it's Tuesday, June 6th. In two days, on June 8th, for one day only, you can say big on the tickets to Deep and Wide if you also register for the Orange Tour. You can learn more at deepandwidetour.com. That's deepandwidetour.com. So excited to have Andy as part of the Orange Tour in a number of cities this fall. That's going to be super excited. I've done the Orange Tour for years, this one will probably be the best ever. So don't miss that. June 8th, go to deepandwidetour.com, get Andy Stanley and Reggie Joyner um, together for a special discount one day only. Um, also want to thank trainedup.church. Man, you got the same problem most people do, which is how do we train all of our volunteers and do it well? And here's the reality. In most churches, the vast majority of volunteers aren't properly trained. Not because you didn't try, but because it's very difficult to get everybody in the same room. And then even if you do that once, well, what happens to the volunteer that joins next week or next month? How do you do that? Well, like much of life, training has gone online and trainedup.church has pioneered a brand new way of training your volunteers. Here's how they do it. They do it online. It's like taking an online course. 
And uh, you can use your content. You can film it, shoot it, upload it to their portal, and then your volunteers go through it. And like churches are seeing 100% of their volunteers aligned and trained because of trainedup.church. You're like, well, we don't have filming equipment. Okay, you can borrow theirs. They actually have a package where you can just get everything, including like lights and camera and script and everything done for you. That's available at trainedup.church. Not sure you want to do that? Okay, well, they've got some training of their own that they have produced. And if you're like, yeah, I'm not really don't want to do that. Okay, they've got videos already pre-recorded that can train your volunteers on everything from guest services to kids ministry to safety to so much more. So uh, everything is at trainedup.church. Head on over and thank you so much to them for making this podcast possible. So we're going to jump into our conversation now with David Platt. Really thrilled to have David Platt as a guest on the podcast today. David, welcome. Great to be here. Hey, thanks, man. Hey, it's good to have you. Now, I have read somewhere that you have five college degrees. So, like, as a guy who's a former lawyer and three university degrees, that's, that's pretty impressive. You know, doctorate, two masters from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and then a couple from the University of Georgia. You still say go dogs? do you? I do. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> that's good. Um but you're also known for being uh, one of the youngest pastors to ever lead a mega church. You were the senior pastor at the Church of Brook Hills in Alabama, Birmingham. Um, man, I'll tell you, that's quite a ride for your 20s. Tell me, uh, what was that whole experience like? Uh, why five degrees? How did the whole, you know, 28-year-old, 26-year-old mega church pastor thing come about? Uh, all right, so... Why five degrees? I, I think it was just when I when I got to school at Georgia, I figured out about midway through that in the same amount of time that I was, it was graduating in four years that I could knock out two degrees. And so oh, yeah. I was like, oh, let's go for it. And then I knew I was going to be going to seminary after that. So I went right to seminary and uh, did the MDiv uh, in uh, yeah fairly good time. And then... Uh, started the PhD process. And actually the way it worked, the PhD program, you actually got a THM in the process of getting the PhD. So <laughs> That's that, pretty cool. I don't know if that like, yeah, I don't know if that counts in the same way, but it, I mean, it did, it's a degree. So anyway, that's how it came about. And so all that to say, while I was uh, doing that PhD, I started teaching some at the seminary mm -hmm. and that's what I was doing, uh, which I thought, oh, this is, this is, Great. Like I love just every semester pouring my life and the leaders are going to be going around the world with the gospel. And I just thought about the multiplication opportunities there. And then because of kind of the seminary school schedule between fall break, spring break, Christmas break, summer break, I could go overseas three or four times a year and take students with me and be a part of yeah, exposing them to God's heart for the nations in the process. I thought, man, I could do this for the rest of my life. And uh but then uh, Hurricane Katrina came and mm -hmm. visited us in New Orleans, sent our house underwater. And so we relocated to Metro Atlanta. Our goal was to get back to New Orleans as soon as we could. But it was during that time that the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, so pretty close to Atlanta, a couple of yeah. hours drive, um, they, their, their pastor had uh, resigned. And so uh, they were looking for somebody to fill in. So I just came over one Sunday and filled in and kind of speaking about the age at that point. I remember the guy who'd asked me to come, uh, who was the executive pastor there, he and I had never met. And so he was waiting outside for me. 
when I got there, but he didn't know what I looked like. And so I walked right past him. He's looking for me, but he was not thinking <laughs> this kid is like the one who's preaching today. And uh, so I go inside. I'm like, hey, where is this guy? And he's, uh, they say, oh, he's out there like looking for you. And then he kind of had the surprise look like, oh, okay, you're, you're who's preaching. All right. And I had, I, he'd asked me for a couple of Sundays. And so I said, all right, so I've got these couple of Sundays on the calendar. And he, his, we joked about it later, but his words were, he said, uh, so well, I said, we got these couple Sundays. He said, well, we'll see how this morning goes. And, <laughs> really? And so anyway, all that to say, uh, after that first Sunday, they were like, oh, we'd love for you to come back. And then I started preaching there in the middle of that conversation or middle of preaching there. They started a conversation with me about coming to pastor there, which, yeah, I had never pastored a church before. And so. I mean, talk about in over my head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And I mean, wait. it wasn't a two-year stint. How long were you there? Yeah, so I was there eight years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and would have loved to have been there for 40 years if the Lord hadn't redirected in his uh, sovereign grace. But so all that to say, oh, I love that church and loved pastoring that church. And uh, well, even the in over my head part, like I, I prayed a prayer, started praying a prayer years ago based on a journal entry from David Brainerd. And uh, the, the prayer was, God, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. And uh, that's kind of been a constant prayer in my own art. It's kind of a dangerous prayer to pray because you find yourself in situations that, well, yeah, that are utterly disproportionate to who you are. But I think that's the way God's designed it so that that way, if it, when, when anything good, which I hope there's good that came out of my time pastoring there or anything else I've done, like, then it's clear. Well, it, it was Clearly only God and his grace that brought that about because okay. that kid had no clue what he was doing. See, this is pretty amazing. I want to drill down on that a little bit. First of all, I never heard that prayer before. That's a great prayer. What difference do you think a prayer like that makes? I'm just curious. I think it's it's a pretty humbling prayer to pray because yeah. it's not like, God, what can I do in my life and leadership and ministry? Uh, it's like, oh, God, my, it's, it just, it's a realization that apart from, him, I really can do nothing. And, uh, and so I want to be in positions where I'm totally dependent on you to do what only you can do that if you don't come through, like I fall flat on my face. But you know, I think about it too, though, not just in positions in ministry or leadership, like I think about it. I mean, I think parenting with four mm. kids, I'm in over my head there. Like I'm pleading this morning for God's grace and my kids. And I'm like, oh, I I want to be faithful. It's not that I'm just passively sitting back asking God, but I, oh, I need his grace on a day-by-day basis. So, and even now where I am in the IMB, like I, uh, I mean, don't tell, well, I guess the podcast, somebody could listen to this. <laughs> somebody might. People on the IMB, like I, I'm in over my head here too. Like, though, and, and I don't say that just to be self-effacing. Like I really believe that. But when I look in scripture, I just see a picture of, uh, God doing things in and through his people that only he can get the credit for. And that's the way he's designed our lives, leadership to be. Okay, so let, let's drill down on that a little bit. And and because we have a lot of young leaders listening, we have a lot of seminary students listening and, and, you know, people who are in their 20s. I think millennials basically make up the bulk of this audience, which is awesome. Um, but here's here's the key. Um I think when you're in over your head, and I would think anybody at, you know, 26-year-old, take over a mega church, you've never pastored before, you're going to be over your head. How do you keep from being overwhelmed? Like, walk us through that. Because even five degrees, I mean, 
that's tough. I've, I've, I've had my share of, of, uh, of schooling. Uh, that's not easy to pull off. So how did you, uh, you know, throughout your, your decade and a half in leadership so far, keep from being, you know, taken under the waves? You know, I, so I don't know how, how I would answer that question if I specifically, if I wasn't in pastoral ministry or ministry leadership in the way I am, although I think it would be the same. Yeah. Well, let me just kind of flesh it out. So, sure. because I, I think about my first day, my first week in the office there at the church of Brook Hill. So I've never been a pastor and I'm sitting there on, I, I remember on Monday, like sitting at a desk, like, what, what do I do? Like, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do. What is it? And I'm like, well, I'm supposed to preach a sermon on Sunday, so I'll start there. And so just start studying the word. And that was uh, that was where I and the Lord used that to just even that kind of moment to remind me, hey, I've designed leadership in the church to where I'm the one doing the leading. And so you need to be faithful to do what I've written here, to proclaim what I've written here mm-hmm. and to try to lead the church to align with what I've written here. And so that's where uh, when I look back at what when I saw God do in and through that local church, it was like the word totally did that work. Like I, and there's no way I would take credit for any of it because I mean, it was really his word. Like even as we walked through a, a journey that I wrote about in a book called radical, like that mm-hmm. was all God's word, like directing and leading and guiding. And then, I mean, it was interesting because we were talking about, all right, if this is what the Bible says about what it means to follow Christ. Then, Oh, what does that mean for our lives in this culture? But then I start, and what, what do we need to be to to be letting go of in this world, sacrificing you? But then I saw people starting to think, okay, well, if I sacrifice this, then I'll earn the favor of God. I was right. like, no, go to Galatians, and it's like, no, the word, it's all by grace. And then I could kind of see people like, oh, okay, so we don't have to do anything. It was like, no. So we go to James, and uh, we walk through James. It's like, no, you do have to do something. Like faith acts, and so it was just. One thing after another, the word just led and guided. And so that's when I when I hear you ask that question, I think about leadership in the church and even now in a, yeah. in a missions organization, like I just want to be oh, faithful to his word and walk with him and step with his spirit on a day by day basis. So I'm trying to think if I would answer that even differently for if I was in a uh, uh, just a, another corporation I think the the foundation would still be the same. Like I would want to abide in Christ and in his word, walk with him, step with the spirit in prayer, pleading for wisdom constantly, asking him to do that, which I could never do on my own. I just, I, I just, I, I would fall flat on my face if it weren't for his word, his spirit. And, and that almost sounds cliche as I say it, but it's, mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah, it's cliche and yet it's not. Right. I mean, I mean, there's a sense in which that really is where the power is. It's it's not in me. It's not in you. It's 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 not in, you know, even an assembly of human beings. It's in the Holy Spirit. It's the presence and the power of Christ and and the word of God. So let me let me just ask you, like, what prepared you for the day to day challenges of leadership? I mean, walking in cold to a large church and there's what, about forty five hundred members. How many people would come out on a weekend like it's over five thousand, isn't it? Well, when I got when I got there, it was probably about twenty five hundred, three thousand, and yeah. then it was about forty five hundred people who would have been there uh, most Sundays uh, when when I wow. left. So the effect of so I, what prepared me? I think what the first thing that comes to my mind is men leaders who had poured mm-hmm. their life into mine. I mean, I my testimony, my story is a story of about 
five men who have had an indelible impact on my life and obviously many others, but those five men helping me come to Christ, giving me, uh, and I think about, oh, my dad's one of those men mm. and, and uh, a student minister who just encouraged me at a pivotal time in my life, started giving me, I mean, when I was in eighth grade, he, he gave me an opportunity to preach, which I don't think he should have. That was probably not responsible. Of him, but, <laughs> eighth uh, grade, eighth but, grade, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, so yeah. And that's so that's awesome. And shouldn't have been it's fun. <laughs> just a quick story there. So this yeah, is go ahead. You. This will show you why that was uh, maybe not the wisest thing. So I, I mean, he was like, yeah, just two. We had a youth service for about 100 people in our youth group. He was like, why don't you preach? Uh, and so I I prepared a sermon on Revelation 3, like the church at Laodicea, lukewarm, yeah. which I mean, was quite a text to tackle. But then I, When you're 13, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> here's what I did. I mean, I walked up with a bottle of water, and I took a sip. And before I said anything else, I spit the water out on the front row and was like, this is what God thinks of you if you're lukewarm. So it was not a, it was not a great start. Uh, so anyway. I, but memorable. Yes, that's right. But that's, that's the beauty, though, right? I had, a, I had a student minister at that point who is in my life saying, all right, let's think about it. Is that the best way to do this or that? <laughs> it's helped me navigate that. And another uh, brother in uh, college, another brother in seminary, like these are men who who showed me how to lead and took me under their wings. And, uh, and so I, I think that that's, and, and gave me foundations to stand on. So right. the reason I knew when I got into the office at Brook Hills, like, what do I do? Well, I need to preach. I need to study the word is because these men had taught me to do that. And it showed me what that looks like in a ministry. So I knew that much. So it was like, okay, now how do I apply what I already know to this new circumstance where, I, uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions about what I do here or there, but I've got, I had a foundation to stand on, I think because of those men and God's grace through them. Well, two things I'm taking away out of that. Number one, um, this seems to be a really common story. I mean, if you ask Andy Stanley or Craig Grishel, hey, you know, what do you think God's going to do with your life? Not None of them would have predicted, <laughs> you know, this, mm-hmm. right? Or the size or the scope or Rick Warren or any of the, you know, Stephen Furtick. I mean, maybe in the back of your mind, you hope, hey, one day there'll be thousands of people. But um, I think a lot of people who find themselves in positions of influence who are dependent on the Holy Spirit, like it really is a God thing. Um, it's it's a surprise. It's a surprise to them, which is which is great. But then did some of those men, those five men, were they still active in your life at the time where you took over leadership? Because I think wise counsel... I mean, if we get isolated, the enemy loves to pick us off, right? He really yeah. does. So did you have like a core of people, whether it was the same or different, that you just said, okay, I'm done my message. What next? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, no, that's really good because yes. So those men, almost all of them, so my, my dad uh, passed away, but some of the mm. other, those other men are still involved in my life right now. And uh, I mean, they're the guys I pick up the phone and call when I've got struggling with this or that. So I'm so that ongoing relationship. And then the other thing I would add is, uh, yeah, wise counsel. In, in even in like I'm, I'm a big believer in a plurality of leadership in the mm-hmm. local church, or even in the organization I'm leading now, which is not a local church. That uh, so God's given me a responsibility of leadership did it at this church now has given me in this mission organization. But, uh, thankfully I'm not the only one in whom the spirit of Christ dwells. And so <laughs> I want to surround myself with, with other leaders 
who are wise, who are who are standing on the word, seeking to walk in step with the spirit and have different gifts that I don't have. And that's what I loved about a plurality of elders in the church to be able to sit around at an elders meeting and say, hey, this is where I think we need to go. What do you guys discern? And they say, yes, that or hey, what about this? It's like, oh, yeah, and thought about that. It's just I love that process. And mm-hmm. then be for the church and say, hey, we believe in an Acts 15 kind of way, like we sought the Lord. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we go in this direction. And so uh, I knew I had a responsibility. I mean, ultimately, kind of, it's on my shoulders as a senior pastor or whatever the title might be like that. But I, I really wanted to lean on this plurality of leaders around me. And 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 now I do the same thing. So, I mean, if you were to, you know, they, they people always say, don't surround yourself with yes people. Like, right. It would not take you five minutes in a leadership meeting uh, here in the IMB to realize these are not yes people around the table. Like there's passionate, good discussion and even disagreement. But it's I think it's a great thing when you can have that kind of discussion and uh, and even disagreement and be before the Lord on your faces, seeking him in prayer, making sure what you're doing aligns with the word and and coming to, to some conclusions together as a result of that. Uh, I just, there's a lot more confidence I have than just, it's not that I don't trust the spirit of Christ in me. I, I do, but I also trust the spirit of Christ in others hmm. as well. And then thankful that he's put our, yeah, good God leaders around me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad that's so practical. And I think it really does start with a, a surrender to God and to his word. But I, I also think, you know, God's call and God's wisdom is confirmed in the people around you. And that is so true. Like I'm meeting with my little advisory team in two weeks and I can't wait to talk to those godly leaders because I got questions I can't answer. And I don't know about you, but but the longer I am in leadership, the less I really trust my own instincts. I always test them, always test them just because you don't know. So take us back because of uh, the young, a lot of young leaders listening to being in your 20s, your first role as a senior pastor, what were some of the challenges that you faced practically in those first few years? And then how did you address them? You've given us a good conceptual framework, but like walk us through a few things that maybe were very specific challenges that you're like, okay, now now I'm up against a wall. Now what do I do? What, what did you run into? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of all, I mean, I can think of immediately all the challenges, which one would be most helpful to dive into. Uh, I think, um, well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, and it's something I, I don't know if I ever learned, and maybe it was just a tension that was constant. The challenge, so one of the biggest challenges for me pastorally was uh, balancing or holding in tension the urgency of where the Bible's calling people to go and and a world of urgent spiritual and physical need. Like I'm, I see this urgent need uh, at the same time to, to balance that with patience and shepherding mm. On yeah. missions, so I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, I look at a world where a couple billion people haven't even heard the gospel yet, and I see the way we use resources in the church. So I'm talking about the local church I was pastoring. Yeah. So like, we got to change this, and so I think I had a tendency, and I'm, yeah, I'm almost positive <laughs> that members of the Church of Brook Hills would say a tendency is a light term, um, <laughs> but to push. And I had to learn, like, 
Uh, and again, I'm not saying I do this well, but patience and shepherding people. Like I couldn't just pick people up and throw them around the world. Like I, I've got to shepherd them there. That's what pastoral ministry is about. It's about shepherding and leading. And whenever I would get impatient, so this was the conviction of my own heart. Whenever mm. I would get impatient, I just see it's a picture of pride in my own heart because the Lord has been so patient with me. Like he he is, he leads and loves me so well. It's not like I came to conclusions I've come to overnight. Yeah. That, that's been a process over years of my own life. So why would I expect it to be overnight in other people's hearts and lives? And so, uh, so shepherding people with patience, uh, that's one thing. Two, uh, just the reality, uh, one challenge, uh, a second challenge, just the reality of, uh, of making sure that in the church you have the structures and systems to support where the word is leading you to go. So yeah. here's what I mean by that. Uh, I, I, I preached a sermon one day. It was like, we need to go to the nations. I want to challenge everybody to uh, spend time this next year on a short-term trip somewhere. Uh, and at the end, I said, all right, if you are willing to do that, I want to invite you to stand up and come down to the front. Well, it was like, we joked about it later. It was like the morning the whole church came down. Like you only got like <laughs> 20 people left sitting out there. And I felt so bad for them. They were either visitors or, I mean, it just looked like. Well, <laughs> it looked like we're the only it. people not on board. Sorry. Yeah, we don't, like, we don't think the world needs Jesus, but you right. guys go. So anyway, all these people. So, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, that was uh, well, well over a thousand <laughs> people come down the front in all our services. And so it was, it was like great in one sense, but then it was like, wait, 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 how, how do they, how do they go? Like, what, how do we help? We, we didn't go? prepare for this moment. No, oh, <laughs> man, we, we did not have the structures in place. And so the next year was disastrous. Oh. I mean, it was, it was really bad because, and it led to uh, all kinds of questions about, I mean, you, all, you start thinking about that many people trying to go on trips and the money and this or that. It was like, whoa, we, we did not. And so it led to, yeah, some really hard things in the church. Uh, so all we went from say, Acts 2 to Acts 6 overnight, real quick. pretty much. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I think so. I, and, and but that's where in my, I don't know if it was just a naive idealism or whatever. Just like, all right, the word says do it. Let's do it. But I hadn't really wisely thought through on a leadership level. Mm. OK, how do we how do we not just kind of catalyze that kind of that kind of movement, but sustain it? And uh, and and build in what's needed to to sustain it in ways that are healthy. Um, and then I, the other final thing that comes to my mind is just uh, there's constant leadership challenges when it comes to other leaders, like mm -hmm. just navigating. Uh, yeah, who 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 is the best people in certain roles? What roles for them to be in? Uh, knowing when it's wise for someone to step out of a role, uh, and, and for you to help shepherd that whole process, like, ah, uh, that, that is, and, and especially with, like, I had somebody tell me when I came on at, at Brook Hills, another pastor of a large church just said, Hey, don't become friends with, uh, people on your staff, like mm -hmm. their employees, your employee, like you've got to keep a distance there. And I just, I just chose not to take that advice. Yeah. Uh, that would be an area where I didn't take that counsel and it, it proved costly, hmm. but in a way that I still would have done the exact same thing. So, uh, you know, when, I mean, we're in a relationship, we're in ministry together. So we, I mean, I, I hope, I mean, I tried to 
create still a good picture of good leadership and authority and that kind of picture. But at the same time, like these are friends that I was sharing life with. And as a result, when when there's moral failure, for example, in one of them, like that hurts all the more. Uh, and and the challenges that go with that. And so how do I shepherd somebody through that and the effects of that in the church? Uh, I just think uh, those are some of the most trying times that I think about in leadership. But and but again, I'd say that's what I mean by costly, but totally worth it because I'd, I'd much rather be in a relationship like that. Well, I, and I thank you so much for your honesty and just your vulnerability in that. Let me, let me just ask you a couple follow-up questions. Number one, when it comes to friends in the church, I think you hinted at this, but like, do you still think that's a good idea? Do you think it's still worth uh, risking relationships with the people you work with or people in your church or on your staff? Or, or have you changed your mind on that? And then are there any guardrails at all? Because this, this question comes up a lot in leadership. And like you say, there are a variety of of rules, do you have any guidelines in place now that maybe you didn't went t- a decade ago? Mm, that's a good question. So on a, on a whole, generally, I wouldn't change it. Like I just yeah. don't know how to be involved in ministry together without doing that in the context of friendship mm-hmm. and partnership together in the gospel relationship. I just I I, just, I don't see it in the New Testament, uh, and so I see a love. I see, it, and it's the kind of thing that leads to acts 20 tearful goodbyes and mm-hmm. that's I think what i experienced in uh leaving the church of brook hills like it was painful yeah. uh because there was a relationship there it wasn't like oh yeah i got another job i'm moving on <laughs> like oh handshake see you later right no, not like right. that so so in that sense generally i wouldn't wouldn't change uh i do think though and maybe along the way this is kind of morphed and wanting to make sure like and I think that's it's the case now, and it would have been the case uh, in my latter years in leadership at the Church of Brook Hills, that there was, I mean, I hope there was friendship. The brothers who I was serving alongside would say, yeah, there was friendship, authentic, good relationship and with our families and that kind of picture. At the same time, uh, a sense of, but we, we know, like, you're leading in this way, we're following in this way. So a good, healthy, I think, biblical picture of authority that... Uh, that I think was there, that I do think has to be there. Like we've got to have, and I think we need it in the church. I think we need yeah. our families. I think we need it in any kind of staff like that, a good biblical picture of authority that says, okay, God's put good, God's put authorities in my life and he's put them there uh, for, for my good. And so how do I then in my leadership role, uh, steward that authority well, not abuse that authority. And then, how do the people that I lead uh, see that authority and I, I hope in an Ephesians 5 marriage kind of way to be able to gladly submit to that authority. But that's... Uh, that's yeah, a, that's good. Like it's a slightly more nuanced understanding yeah. of the relationship, right? That's right. That's if right. I can go back to number two, you know, after uh, everybody volunteered for mission trip, just a, just curious, how, how did you move through that? Like what did you do when the next year was so bad what were a couple of key changes you realized, oh man, I've, I've, because you said it was infrastructure, right? And that happens. I oh. mean, there are a lot of leaders listening with rapidly growing churches and their staff is imploding or their structures are imploding or their model is imploding. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were just a couple of quick things you, you know, tell us quickly, I'm sure they weren't quick, but a couple no. of things you did, David, to, to get you out of that ditch. Well, unfortunately, uh, yeah, just to be totally vulnerable, like it, it led to some discord 
between some staff that ended up those staff ended up not continuing on there. So that, uh, again, that was part of the painful part. But so sure. what we did to get out of it um, was with leader, like we, I, we tried to work through how can we kind of keep everybody in place and, and create structures, but it just wasn't working. And so ended up, so with, with new leadership. And so it was like, okay, what are the non-negotiable foundations we need to set up in the structures and systems and do that from the very beginning and what it did is those structures and systems uh it created an atmosphere of trust whereas the lack of structures and system had created a atmosphere of distrust because mm-hmm. when it's weren't clear here's how this is going to work then people didn't know what was going on and this this person or that person's uh decision making and it just led to distrust that yeah led yeah to, so I, I don't know. That's a great insight, you know, that structure actually leads to greater trust or can. I'm not sure it automatically does. Right, right. Bureaucracies can be very distrustful, but that actually some order to the organization can lead to healthier relationships and better trust. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, good. There was, it's good, there was lack of There was lack of structure and lack of communication, mm. which obviously also breeds distrust. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time, like, okay, how do we develop trust as a team by... I mean, trust is based on, I mean, there's a character level of trust that if you can't trust somebody else's character, there's a competence level of trust that yeah. it comes to, okay, can somebody get the job done? If they can't, like that's going to affect trust. Uh, but then that communication and even some conflict that goes with it, that if we dive into in a healthy way, will actually create, create greater trust. That's one of the things we talk about a good bit even now is if we're not careful, we'll avoid conflict, but that yeah. actually is not going to help trust at all because then we just kind of leave below the surface the things we really like to say, or we usually kind of share those things with other people. And all of a sudden you got all kinds of mistrust that's coming from that. Yeah, that, that's really, really good stuff. Cause I know even in, in what I lead, I've, I've said to team members over and over again, you cannot over communicate. If you ever over communicate, I'll let you know. I've not had to let people know <laughs> yet, you know, and, yeah. and good communication leads to greater trust. Um, okay. couple of thoughts. Cause you've, you've got a really uh, passionate voice about the world and reaching people with the gospel. And you've also got a, a national platform where you get to visit a lot of churches, see a lot of churches. Where do you think churches in the West, think about the United States, Canada, the Western world as you know it. What do you think Western Christians are missing when it comes to understanding Christians and other churches in, in different parts of the world and what they're dealing with? And, and why do you think we keep missing it? Hmm. Oh, good question. All right. So I think, I think this is becoming less and less so in our culture. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in most of the places we work, particularly around the world are places where it's, uh, yeah, it's not either illegal to share the gospel or right. really hard, difficult, dangerous place to share the gospel. And so when I'm spending time with believers around the world, I am spending time with believers who know that, that there's a cost to following Christ. Like there, mm-hmm. there's no cultural Christianity where they live. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like we know that. And, uh, and so it's not going to be easy. And, uh, and there's a faith that, I mean, it really reflects the New Testament there because that's obviously the context in which the church. Yeah, there's one reason to be a Christian, right? You, you yeah, love Jesus. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. And so, and so they know, okay, it's going to be costly. So, and I think we have a lot to learn, especially as we uh, live in a culture where it's increasingly uh, less I mean, there's there's less and less cultural Christianity. I think yeah. there's uh, it's it's uh, more costly to f- 
follow Christ, like to really believe the Bible and apply it in our lives is becoming, I think, more and more costly in the culture we live in now. And uh, and so, oh, what I pray for the church here then is that we would learn from our brothers and sisters around the world that that cost is more than worth it. Uh, and we're not experiencing the level that so many of them are experiencing, but even whatever level we do experience some cost, some pushback that we would not shrink back from that, but that not that we pursue uh, persecution or anything like that, but that we do pursue Christ and faithfulness to him, knowing that that will not necessarily lead to our advancement in the world, that that actually may lead to the opposite in the world, but to really believe that's worth it. I think that's what we see on the page of the New Testament. I think we see it in our brothers and sisters around the world, and I, I hope we will have the conviction to uh, live it out in our own lives. Yeah, I pr- appreciate what you're saying there. W- one of the things I wonder about sometimes, David, and I just want to run it by you, I, I think there is absolute genuine persecution of Christians for um, beliefs, for following Jesus, and, and you know, as, as, as you know as well as anyone around the world, people die every day uh, because they refuse to renounce Jesus as Lord. Do you think sometimes in North America we think we're being persecuted, but really we're just lacking like social intelligence or or... Or some of the other things that we say, oh, I'm so persecuted. It's like, no, you were just a little bit jerkish in that moment. Like, do you ever see that? Do you ever think that sometimes we have a false definition of what persecution is? Well, sure. I mean, there's there's uh, there's wise things that people do to <laughs> lead, that lead to persecution, and there's really unwise things that people do that lead to persecution. And so we want to make sure uh, that we don't, and especially like glorify unwise things we do to lead to persecution. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah, I did that and was persecuted. Kind of like Acts five, like rejoicing I've been persecuted. It's like, ah, okay, <laughs> that's a little different. Like they, so I think that's where we want to be. Yes, so the, that's what the word that comes to my mind is wisdom. Like, how do we wisely proclaim the gospel? And the word there, proclaim. I think so. As I even as I say mm-hmm. that, like, I think that's the key because persecution. I think this is in scripture and all over the world, like persecution follows proclamation. Uh, uh, and in this sense, like, uh, you know, it's kind of the whole idea that sometimes people say, well, I witnessed with my life. I witnessed by being a good person. Um, well, when those disciples who heard Jesus' words, you're going to receive my spirit and you're going to be witnesses. Uh, they weren't just hearing, okay, live good lives. Because the reality right. is if they good lives and nice lives, they wouldn't have lost their lives. Yeah. The reason 10 out of 11 of those guys were died martyrs deaths as best as we know. And John who didn't was exiled on an Island was because they were proclaiming the gospel. Uh, it was proclamation of the gospel. And it's the same thing around the world. Like I think of uh, friends in the middle East that I have who, if they just live good lives, like they're not going to experience any persecution. Mm-hmm. The, the moment they'll receive persecutions, they start proclaiming that Jesus is God, that he's Christ, and he's the only way to be saved from our sins. Like, that's going to lead, uh, I mean, my friends in Somalia are going to have their throats slit at that point. And so uh, so it, it, it follows proclamation. So I think, so how does that relate to us here? I think, one, we've just got to make sure that, I mean, are we proclaiming the gospel? And then are we doing that wisely? And so that leads into just evangelism. Like, how do you do evangelism? Not in ways that you're jerkish to use your, <laughs> your term earlier, yeah. but 
how do we do that in ways that are and we're intentionally building bridges to the gospel uh, in the context of relationship with other people. We're we're proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We're helping people, uh, helping navigate where people's worldview is and how to how to bring the gospel to bear on that worldview and and, and bring people to Christ. Like that, that is the work that we're called to do. And that will lead to pushback in the world. You mm. know, we are. And so that's where we got to ask the question, are we, are we doing that? And if we're not doing that, then we're, we're probably missing out on exactly what persecution is. Because persecution that we see in scripture is following proclamation for the most part. Hmm. Well, that kind of takes us to the new role that you adopted a couple years ago, where you became the president of the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. And if we can just go there for a minute, uh, it's fascinating because, I mean, you went from a big challenge when you started at Brook Hills as a young leader, never having pastored a church before to jump into one that size. And then all of a sudden you take on this massive organization that I think had a 210, if I'm right, million dollar cumulative deficit over the last number of years before you took over. Uh, tell me about that. That had to be a ride as well. Uh, yeah, it's definitely been a ride. I I, I didn't know it was that much. Um, so uh, uh, when it comes to the deficit, so basically, <laughs> uh, so the Lord, his leadership into this role, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think I, I said, like, I would have loved to have pastored Church of Brookhills for the next 40 years of my life, but uh, I was on a trip in, in Nepal, which I would go overseas three or four times a year mm. as pastor, but this particular trip, the Lord just did an unusual work in my heart, and I, I, I thought he was leading me to move overseas. I thought, I mean, I've wanted to take a one-way ticket at some point, and still holding out hope <laughs> for the one-way ticket at some point, but I, I thought that's what was happening, and uh but it was during the process of the months afterwards when my wife and I were praying through, do we need to go overseas? That the IMB contacts me. And, uh, and so just start wrestling with, okay, why would I? And my first result was, ah, I want to go overseas. But then, or I, again, would love to keep pastoring. But it was kind of a, oh, why would I be willing to go overseas and not be willing to mobilize and shepherd thousands of people who are going overseas? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so. The Lord used that process to lead me into this role. And uh, and so, yeah, when I got here in leadership, so, yeah, I was new to the local church when I stepped in there. I have not led a $250 million organization before. And so I find myself in this role again, just, Lord, I need your grace, your wisdom, pleading. And then it has been challenging uh, because, yeah, we came face to face. I knew that there were some financial struggles. Um, and by God's grace, we haven't had any debt or anything like that, but but did realize we were because we had some uh, reserves. We were spending twenty to forty million dollars a year more than we were bringing in, which gotcha. uh, you could do for a little while, but not long term. And so, uh, yeah, it totaled up to about two hundred ten million dollars over five or six years. And so we had to make some really hard calls, and mm. and basically, we needed to reduce the total number of our mission force. We just couldn't sustain that, and so. Uh, God was really gracious in that whole process. Um, and it was, it was good again, going back to the plurality of leadership, even the process of deciding that it was just good not to do that on my own. I mean, to come together with a group of brothers to start, uh, on our faces before the Lord, and then to look at these realities all day long. And then by the end of, and we'd had weeks and weeks of conversations, obviously, but the end of this meeting where that decision was finally made to really have clarity around the room that this is what we need to do. And uh, 
So, so thankful for that. So we were to walk through a process where by God's grace, we were able to, for all of our missionaries overseas, that was a voluntary process. We basically said, uh, we're not going to tell anybody you have to leave overseas, but if we want you to just go before the Lord and if he's leading you to make a transition, this is the time to do it. And here's how we, we want to help you do that. Um, so anyway, really, really challenging, uh, but God's grace in the middle of it. Well, and I think it's an interesting uh, challenge as well, because we got like denominational leaders listening. We have seminary <laughs> officials listening. We have um, congregations that are sort of stuck or declining listening. And I mean, that's what you were faced with, right? A model that served incredibly well for a season. And then the model was broken, burning 20 to $40 million a year. That's a lot of money. Um what what made you face that head on? What was the biggest challenge associated with it, and what happened as a result of of the fact that you've you've done it? Like that's a that's a big deal. I don't want people to miss uh, that, David. So the uh, I mean, just the the bare financial realities were tough to uh, get around. Like I mean, mm-hmm. there were you know, there's some decisions you make in leadership where it's like, okay, you could go this option or this option, or you got three options for you, which one do we do? And okay, you're going to choose one. Uh, and, uh, but you could have gone the other two. Like this was in that sense, this was not even like that. Like this decision was not like that. Like, you know what? It's clear. We can't spend 20, $40 million a year more than we're bringing in. It's just, it's clear. We've got to do this. So that led to then the decision in that sense, I'm not going to say that was easy. It was hard, but here's why it was hard because Again, going back to some of what we talked about, oh, we're talking about people. We were talking about hundreds of people who, uh, and there, yeah, I mean, there's a family atmosphere in the IMB that I'm really mm-hmm. thankful for, a way that's church-like. And, uh, and so these are people who have served, some of them for a few years, some of them for decades around the world for the spread of the gospel. And so that just was really hard. You're not dealing with just, I mean, there's one thing if it was just numbers on a page, yeah. Uh, but it's when it's people in their lives, and not just missionaries, but the people they're they're spending their lives serving, and they're yeah. by that. It's like, oh, well, and I think that that's why. If I can just say that, David, I'm so glad you're talking about that because I think that's why a lot of people don't change. I think when they look at how difficult that is, and they see the faces behind it, and they realize, well, this is the way we've always done it. Isn't it just going to get better? That's a really good description of the pain associated with deep change in a in you know a culture that has changed radically. That's that's exactly right. Like I could think of a lot of good reasons not to go down the route we did. And yeah. One of them, yeah, I mean it's just not not that pain you could avoid. But um, but that's where even even on that level, then you start thinking about well, what what's going to be more painful? Like right now, for us to do that over the last couple of years. Uh, we were able to be generous in really helping people land on their feet in, uh, in, in a different role assignment that God was leading them to. If we had waited any longer, we wouldn't have been able to have that generosity. Like We were able to help people uh, make that transition in a way that if we waited two, year, two more years or however long, like we wouldn't have been. And so that actually would not have been left. We would have had to make the same decision. We wouldn't be able to love people as well as I hope when we try to do in that process. So, uh, so what's the result been like, what are you on your feet financially? Do you, do you see a brighter future? Um, because I think there is hope after restructuring in many cases. 
Yes, yes, yes. So I'm so glad you asked that because I was starting to get depressed thinking about <laughs> but, uh So yes, there is hope. So, And I would even say hope, even it's been so encouraging to see how God has, you know, for that painful process, and I'm not saying this has been easy for those who stepped out of the IMB during that time, but but I, I have seen God lead people to new positions and new assignments in wonderful ways that uh, it just... God does work all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called yeah. according to his purpose. And so to see that play out, and so there's hope on that level. And then organizationally, so yeah, we just, uh, at the end of this last year, passed uh, a balanced budget uh, for the wow. and And which, which and by that I mean, uh, yeah, our revenue and our expenses are matching. And, uh, and so we're at a much healthier financial place. And not just so. And then this is the other big picture. Uh, one of the things that that brought to the surface, that process brought to the surface, is the fact that. So in our model, we fully support all of our missionaries. So we right now about about thirty seven eight hundred missionaries around the world that are fully supported through a cooperative program and cooperative giving from thousands of churches. And so we're and so those individuals are not raising support like it's coming in so they're yeah. full-time focused on spreading the gospel among those who've never heard it which is great the thing is though what what we have realized what i've communicated is that we only we can only do that for a certain amount of people and mm. and we've got a cap on the number of people we can do that with a ceiling over our heads that's what we were living above the ceiling we had to bring it back down but what so what I don't want, though, is to cap the number of people who are spreading the gospel around the world through the IMB. So that means we've got to open up. So we've got to continue. We're going to continue to support people full time in that way. But then we're also going to open up avenues for more people to go through all kinds of other routes uh, and the, the opportunities that are there for professionals to go and work overseas and be a part of missionary teams for the spread of the gospel. Like there are opportunities in the global marketplace for the nations to fund the spread of the gospel of the nations. If we'll think wisely through that retirees trying to encourage retirees, Hey, take the paycheck from uncle Sam instead of spending it on golf in South Florida, like go spread the gospel in Southeast Asia. Uh, so that's where that this change process has helped prompt a paradigm shift. When we think about, Okay, wait, we've, we've clearly got a limit on the number of missionaries we can send this way. So we're not going to stop sending missionaries that way. But are there other ways that we can also send missionaries around the world that uh, that our financial model would be a little bit different for? And uh, and and so it's led to that kind of paradigm shift uh, by necessity in a sense that we're 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 walking through. I mean, that that kind of paradigm shift, I mean, getting people in the church to think through, okay, not just I leave my job to become a missionary, I can actually leverage my job to become a missionary. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's pretty significant. And it's a, a part of the fruit of walking through this change process. Uh, see, that's great, David. And I think that gives a lot of hope to people on the other side of change, because I think when you're on the front side of the pain, you only see the downside. And, you know, I've so appreciated, this has been such a, such a refreshing conversation, David. Uh, one thing that seems to be something that you've encountered more than maybe people, you know, who've read your books or watched what God is doing through you, you know, as we now say, we only see the upside, right? Social media books, they only really tell the upside and you think, oh, this guy doesn't have the problems I have. But it's pretty clear you did, whether it was, you know, that massive recruitment at your old church with all the dislocation that that produced or having to walk into a new job and day one as a CEO face a brutal reality. How have you 
stayed encouraged? How have you endured the criticism, the broken relationships, the, the frustration, and still kept your faith, still kept your family, still kept your hope? Oh, what a great question. I, uh, I think, and I, I, I mean, one of the first thoughts that comes to my mind is I, I've definitely been discouraged mm. at points, and so that's reality. Um, so what has been encouraging? I think, man, what's been most encouraging in the journey, I, so my, my, the first two places in my mind go are, one, uh, that time with the Lord Mm-hmm. is is so critical and maybe, maybe it just I'd go off on a little tangent there yeah, because yeah. for what it's worth for somebody who might be listening because i think about a time in my life as pastor of the church of brick hills when things were really going well like church growing i uh, had written a book a lot of people reading it traveling preaching doing all kinds of stuff and uh man my time with the lord for a long season there was inconsistent at best and mm. non-existent most days. If I'm just mm. being like non-existent, and, and it wasn't because I was uh, lazy. Like I was working hard. I was staying yeah. up all night doing all. I mean, so much going on. Uh, but ah, oh, it, it's frightening when I look back at that uh, to think about how successful, so to speak, mm. uh, I was perceived as in ministry and how far I was from the Lord. And, uh, um, I just, ah, I thank God. I I think about all the directions that could have gone that it didn't go by his mercy. And so all that to say, the Lord used my wife in that Mm. process to really wake me up, uh, to that reality. And, uh, just in a conversation with her one day where I try to periodically ask her, how can I love you better? And this particular day, like she, she didn't even like sugarcoat. Well, you're such a good husband or dad or whatever. She's like, you can take, you got to take care of yourself. She said, I don't know when you have a quiet time. I don't, I mean, you you don't sleep, you don't eat healthy, you don't exercise. Like you're, if you don't start taking care of yourself spiritually in every other way, you're not going to be around to love me very long. And it was a wake up call for me. And so, I don't know if there's somebody listening who's maybe even in that kind of season, but I just oh, I encourage you don't let uh that season continue like and so when i think about what is sustained even over the last couple of years like it's every morning that time with the lord is so valuable i don't want to sound cliche either but it's just true like it I is <laughs> it's pleading for wisdom every day it's it's letting the word speak wisdom into my heart that i need on a day-by-day basis it's calling out to him for what I need. Uh, so, and so, and the other area my mind goes is, is to family. I mean, I, mm. I am so thankful for my wife and that comment there, that conversation that I mentioned earlier. And just, she is a constant encouragement to me. And I, I can't imagine going through stresses and challenges in the church and, uh, uh, I whatever, if, if there's, if there's not, I mean, that peace at home is so huge. And I'm not saying we have never had any struggles at home either. Like our marriage is not perfect and parenting is definitely not perfect. But we really try and have tried to do just whether it's simple things like regular date nights or other things like to really cultivate peace at home because that's 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 a that's a, a, a spring from which so much flows. So anyway. 
David, you've been uh, just so transparent, and I just want to thank you for your humility. And I think really for a lot of leaders listening, we always wonder, you know, what's it really like? And you, you've just been so transparent and so honest. And I think all of us find yourself at some level in 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 your story. And so just thanks for that gift and uh, thanks for what you're continuing to allow. And, you know, I think you're right. Like those times, and I've, I've had that in my life where my walk with God wasn't as close as it should be. And I think you're playing with fire, right, at that point. And yeah. uh, fortunately, by the grace of God, you didn't get burned. <laughs> and I haven't been burned in a way that is disqualifying or, you know, life-changing. Um, but you just don't want to play that often. You really don't. And he is the one who sustains us. And, you know, that is what it's about. David, this is just so huge. You've been so generous with your time. I know that people are going to want to connect with you online. So just tell us where they can find you. Yeah. Um, Radical.net would be kind of uh, just a whole host of resources that are yeah. trying to have available there. And then imb.org. And then actually just re-released a book called Counterculture. So yeah. Counterculture. Um, so those are the things that come to my mind, but yeah. We'll have all those in the show notes too. David, Great. you've been so generous today and, and so helpful and, and thank you so very much. Hey, thank you. This is, yeah, pure joy just having a conversation. Man, I love that conversation, especially those last like 10 minutes or so. Wasn't that uh, just incredible? David, thanks so much. If you want more, you can get all the links and everything we talked about at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 143, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 143. If you're not sure how to spell Newhoff, join the rest of the planet, and you can go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. That'll get you to the same place, and uh, just hit blog, and you'll see the show notes in, in there. Use the search feature and just type in David's name. You'll find it. Okay. Hey, uh, we are back next week with a fresh episode. I'm super excited next week to bring you, are you ready for this? We're going to have a conversation with Barnabas Piper. He is no stranger to this podcast. And uh, you know what? It takes quite a mind to talk about a subject, like a thought, an idea, an abstract for an hour, and we do it. It's all about curiosity, and, and it's something I'm passionate about. I'm writing a new book this summer. I've got a whole chapter in the book on the power of curiosity and how it defeats cynicism. So here's an excerpt of my conversation with Barnabas Piper. Inside the church building, if if the goal of the church is to reach a community for Christ, well, we've got a, a student ministry and a kids ministry and a small groups ministry and a worship ministry. Well, each of them has has a specific context in which they can do that. But are you curious enough to say, how do we work together on this? How does the kids ministry and the student ministry, how does the student ministry and the worship ministry, how does the groups ministry and the outreach ministry, how, how are we working together how well do we know each other to know they meet a need better than I do? Hmm. And so we should we should lean on them to, to meet the needs of this this person because because that's where the strength is. And then, OK, let's take it outside the walls of the church again. Do you know that there are other churches in your city who are better at things than you are? So that's coming up next week. Subscribers, you'll get it automatically. There's a fresh episode every Tuesday. And uh, from time to time, like we did last month, we've got bonus episodes for you. Again, subscribers, and you subscribe for free, you, you get that automatically on your devices. So you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for sharing, for ratings and reviews, and, and for just spreading the love. We love you guys. I uh, really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.